I do also want to say that the people, the children, the missionaries in Rwanda bring you their greetings. Your packages were safely delivered to Bosnia as well as to Rwanda. Altogether, in the United States and Canada, we collected almost 120,000 boxes. We didn't pass out quite that many single-handedly because they were distributed in different places, but just the ones we did were a lot. And those kids, to watch the looks on their faces, it was worth it. I mean, they stood in line with bated breath like, give me that package. <laughs> and uh, more stories later for that. We've got a video, hopefully, that's coming that was taken while we were there. And one of these nights we'll show it when we put it together. I've had you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. I've called this message a Christmas crisis. And I think we'll understand it by the time we get through with it, why it's called that. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we now ask that these words would become very meaningful to us this Christmas celebration. Almost 2,000 years after the event actually took place in Bethlehem. Help us, Lord, to understand exactly who it is we're dealing with when we speak of this Christmas child and what our response is to be to him. In Jesus' name, amen. I picked up an article in USA Today not too long ago, and I saved it just for this event. Now I realize you can't see it from where you're sitting. But uh, the headline says, The baby is here at 30,000 feet. The part of the article goes like this. When the Debarra family boarded TWA Flight 265 from New York, they were an ordinary family of three headed to Orlando for Disney World. When the plane made an unscheduled landing at Dulles International Airport in Virginia Wednesday, they were a frazzled but joyous family of four. Matthew DeBarra came into the world aboard a speeding jetliner at 30,000 feet in the air. He nearly died, but a cabin full of godsends, including a doctor two paramedics, and a resourceful flight crew saved the day. Not quite seven months pregnant, 
Teresa DeBarra, 35, doubled over in pain 30 minutes into the flight on Wednesday. The boy's middle name is Dulles, <laughs> named after the airport. His first name means God sent. It's Matthew. Sandy DeBarra said, They were all God sends. The warmth and help that people displayed really restores your faith in humanity. Now that's a fun story, but I'm using that as an introduction, a segue into God's headliner. The baby is here, another baby. Not born at 30,000 feet, in fact, born certainly in more primitive conditions than an airplane with doctors and paramedics, as primitive as that was. But this baby is here. This baby truly is a God send, sent to the earth from heaven to secure salvation for men and women. His name, Jesus, means God is salvation. Now, I've called this message today a Christmas crisis because every Christmas has two elements. There are two elements that would seem very obvious, but there are two elements that are passed by every Christmas by most people. Every Christmas has Christ. Every Christmas has a crisis. The first one is easy to recognize and very obvious, that every Christmas has Christ. You say, that's obvious. I mean, His name is in the word Christmas. It's not Xmas. It's Christmas. He was born. We don't know exactly when, but we celebrate His birth on this day. And so every Christmas has Christ. But, though that sounds obvious, the world has forgotten that. The world, it seems, celebrates everything but His birth, His coming, and the meaning of that. As we've often said for many people, Christmas is like having a birthday party where they forget to invite the one whose birthday it is. I've had this experience on two separate occasions where I was talking to someone about the Lord. We were having a conversation about spiritual things. We were talking about churches and the other person actually looked at me in the eyes and said, well, I go to Calvary Chapel. What church do you go to? I thought, obviously, we go to a different service. Must have missed each other. I think that's the similar response to many people when it comes to Christmas. Jesus could be right there. I celebrate Christmas. Who are you? What do you want? Every Christmas is Christ. And every Christmas, and we see it even here in John chapter 1, has a crisis. Now what I mean by a crisis is what the word actually means. A juncture, a point of decision, a crossroads, a choice that people have to make. You know, Jesus Christ always tended to divide people. Did you know that? He was controversial. He forced people into making a decision. He said, you are either for me or against me. He never gave people any other latitude. I agree with Rebecca Pippert who wrote, whenever Jesus went, he produced a crisis. He compelled individuals to decide to make a choice. In fact, he struck me as the most crisis-producing individual I've ever encountered. Nearly everyone clashed with Jesus, whether they loved Him or whether they hated Him. First of all, today we want to look at the Christ of Christmas and then 
the last few verses, the crisis of Christmas. But first of all, the Christ that we celebrate. Who is this baby in the manger? Who really is he? What does the scripture say about him? And principally John's gospel here. And we find that Jesus is far more than a plastic figurine with the light inside of him in somebody's front yard. He's much more than a figurehead of a world religion or an icon of a yearly celebration. He's much more than a man, a a prophet, as some people say. And what John does is goes back, way back into history to the very beginning. He doesn't even begin at Bethlehem. He doesn't get to Bethlehem until verse 14. The Word became flesh. That's Bethlehem. That's the incarnation. John goes way back to the very beginning of time and gives a full-orbed description of who Jesus Christ really is. And as we look at verse 1, beginning there, we find four things about this Christ. First of all, He's what I've called the message maker. He came to bring God's final message to the earth. Now notice what it says. In the beginning was the Word. That's His description, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. It's used four times in this section. He's called the Word. Now, that's an odd kind of a description for a person. It sounds impersonal, doesn't it? I'd like to introduce you to my friend, the Word. But you ought to know that when John wrote this to his original hearers, it made perfect sense, whether Jew or Greek. The Jews use the term, the Word. The Hebrew term is memra. They use it in their targums and in their writings. The Word was a substitute for the very name of God, the self-expression of God. He was called the Word. The Greeks also used the term, the Word. The Greek word is logos. The Greek philosophers, as they notice the earth, as they notice their surroundings, that we live in an ordered environment, with predictable patterns. The sun rises predictably every morning and sets every evening. It never changes so far. The stars and the planets have their own orbits. There's fixed laws of nature. As they looked around, they looked for a cause, a divine principle, a purpose. And they gave this an impersonal name. Instead of saying, it is God, they said, The Word, the Logos, is the governing principle that orders the universe. The Logos, the Word, is responsible for the order. So you can see the impact of this message when he opens up the Gospels and he says, In the beginning was the Logos, the self-expression of God, the reason for everything in existence. He's God's final message to the earth. Now God could have communicated to Mankind in a variety of ways. He could have written a book, and he did. He spoke to us in the scriptures. Certainly, that's one way to communicate with man. God could have sent field representatives from heaven to earth. He did that too. Prophets from time to time in Israel's history showed up and said, Thus saith the Lord, I'm God's rep. I'm representing his truth to your heart. God could have used infomercials. And I think He did too. We call them miracles in the Old Testament. Dramatic intervention 
into our world and it demonstrated to man there is a God and He can do great things. It advertised Him. But the most personal way, the best way, is to be there, to show up, to walk among men, to let the Logos become flesh, the Word, the principle, the expression of God, to show up in terms of a person. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, in the past, Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of of His being. So He's the message maker, the final word. Everything that God wants to say, He said it in Jesus, period. Now God had to do this. And I'll tell you why. Mankind is in a predicament. We're in a box. We have defined parameters, walls of time and space. We live in a time and space continuum. It's the natural world. Man cannot get outside of his natural world into the supernatural, though he's tried from time to time. Every now and then somebody will come along, scratch their heads and go, we've got to get in touch with the supernatural world. And every time he does that, he creates a new religious system. That's what religion is. The natural man trying to escape the box, trying to bridge the gap from the natural to the supernatural. A way to get in touch with God. God did exactly the opposite. God from the outside in the supernatural realm spoke to man inside the box through prophets, through writings, through infomercials called miracles. But finally he broke into our time and space continuum. He crawled into the box as a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 tells us, And we beheld... We saw, we gazed upon His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is God crawling inside of our box. The gap between the supernatural and the natural has been bridged. He showed up. The Word. Of all the Christmas cards I have seen this year, the one that really wins the award in my heart is the card I'm holding in my hand. It's got several pictures on the front. It's got King Tut. It's got Julius Caesar. It's got Mahesh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Buddha, Mao Zedong. And the front part of the card says, History is crowded with men who would be gods. Open up the card. But only one God who would be man. And that's what he did. He didn't come along and say, I am a great general, I am mighty. He came as God in human flesh, a humble baby in Bethlehem. But he was God's final logos, message to the world. Everything that God has to say is said in Christ. He's the exact representation of his being. Secondly, we see in this chapter that not only is he the message maker, but this Christ is the universe creator. For it says, all things... Uh, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that has been made. Boy, I'll tell you, the more you read in this paragraph, the more mysterious this little baby in a manger becomes. 
He's God's final word, the reason, the principle, the self-expression of God. Then it says everything was made, created through Him. He's God the Creator. Now from time to time, scientists will ask important questions, questions of origin. Where do we come from? How do we get here? How long did it take for us to get here? And they ask this important question, though they don't answer it very definitively, and that is, can man, through the natural processes of time over billions of years, come to be as we are now? One of the most thorough looks into that question was done a few years ago at the Wistar Institute. Fifty mathematicians, paleontologists, biologists got together, studied it over a summer, and part of their summary statement was this, quote, based on our understanding of the laws of chemistry and physics and what we know about randomness, there is no way the complexity of life could come about. That's a revealing statement. Did you get that? Here we are. I don't see how we got here. All that we know about math, science, and randomness, the chances of us getting to this state are impossible. It goes back to William Paley's argument in the 1700s, a philosopher who said, whenever you see design, you can figure out somebody designed it. It's the famous Paley's watchmaker argument. You look at a watch, and you could say, here's a watch right here, a Harley-Davidson watch to be exact. And you could say, now, I see that this has got design to it. I would concur that somebody designed this watch. Or you could say, well, perhaps, but have you thought of the alternative that over billions of years as rocks, chemicals, wound their way down through the riverbanks and the different strata of uh, geological formations that eventually they came together and uh, given enough time, billions of years, we heard this tick. I think Paley was right. When you see design, there's got to be a designer. When you see a watch, there's got to be a watchmaker. When you see an ordered universe, there's got to be a universe maker. Who is it? The baby in Bethlehem. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now here's God's headline. The baby is here. He's not just a little figurine in a front yard somewhere. He's not just a nice little man with good little sayings. He's God's final message. He's the creator of the universe. Verse 4 tells us the third thing about who he is. He's life giver. The life giver. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, this baby's becoming more mysterious as we continue to read. Oh, that cute little baby in Bethlehem's cradle. Who is he? The message maker. Universe creator. Now it says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The word that is used here, in fact, it's used 36 times in the Gospels. The word for life is the word zoe in the Greek language. Zoe. 17 of those 36 times, it always has an adjective attached to it. Ionios. Ionios zoe, eternal life. And it speaks of a quality of life. Not physical life, but a quality of life that comes through a spiritual birth and a relationship with God. Listen to how it's used in the New Testament. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, The Son gives life, zoe, to whom He is pleased to give it. Later, when Jesus spoke to Martha, the sister of Mary and of Lazarus, He said, I am the resurrection and the life, zoe. He who believes in Me will live even though He dies. 
And then to Thomas, that famous saying that we all know, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Zoe. No man comes to the Father but through me. You should also know that the New Testament uses the word life three different separate ways. The first use is the word bios or bios. We get the word biosphere, biology, from it. It speaks of physical life. It's where most of us spend most of our time thinking about. Physical life, physical loss, physical everything. How do I look? How much body fat have I gained this season? You should know that in the New Testament, every time the word bios is used, it's it's rarely used at all. And every time it's used, it's used negatively. Because it's not as important as the spiritual aspect of life. Jesus said, The seed that fell among the thorns is choked by the pleasures of this life, bios. Physical life can choke out spiritual life. The second use of the term life in the New Testament is the word suke. We get our word psyche or psychology from it. It speaks about the personality, the inward person. Jesus used this term when he said, for you to save your life, your inner self, your true self, you must surrender it or lose it. But this third term, zoe, speaks of a quality of life that transcends the earthly. Our focus is not on earth or the biosphere, but on heaven and something that lasts eternally. It's age-abiding life. In Him is life. That baby, that little baby in that manger, though given life some 2,000 years ago, physically, even before He came into existence in verse 14, in Him is life, true life, age-abiding life. Look at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. And beyond that, the fourth thing we notice about this Christ of Christmas, that He's the light bearer. It says, The life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but sent to bear witness of that light. And then verse 9, that, that's Jesus, was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, I've got to confess to you, I've always been troubled by some of these verses. Uh, Verse 5 has always bugged me because I just didn't understand it. The light shines in darkness and darkness didn't comprehend it. And that's been translated so many different ways. Let me read that to you in the Amplified Bible. I think it gives a full description of its meaning. The light shined in the darkness. It says, The darkness has never overpowered it, has never put it out, has not absorbed it, has not appropriated it, and is unreceptive to it. This is what God did. He penetrated the London fog of this world with the light of His Son. Jesus is God's flashlight into the dark abyss of human time. And God shines His flashlight in it, and every time God shines His light, the light of Jesus, the world doesn't comprehend it, doesn't grab it, in fact, tries to get rid of it. You might want to try this sometime, even tonight. Your loved one goes to bed. As soon as you hear the first... (laughs) Go grab a flashlight, a bright one. 
and nudge them a little bit and then turn that baby on their eyes. What will they do? They will try to grab it and get rid of it. Or get rid of you, actually. Maybe even permanently. Who knows? The world has seen the light coming. It shines into their darkness. It's uncomfortable. And the only thing they can say when they see Jesus is, Get rid of Him. Keep Him as a little manger baby. Don't let Him grow up and be who He really is. The darkness has not comprehended it. The world has always been uncomfortable with God's true light. So they've tried persecution to extinguish the light. It happens in various parts of the world even today. They try it through the atheist organizations or the Jesus Seminar or a variety of ways to rewrite, reorganize, rethink and get rid of the light. The light shines in the darkness. And like rats scurrying to a dark corner when the light's on so the world cannot comprehend or tolerate the light. Now this is the full-orbed summary of all that Christ is. This Christ of Christmas is not an icon for a celebration. He's not a little plastic, light-giving, front-yard statue. He's not just a good man or a prophet. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is God Himself. He brings God's final message to the world. He brings true light in man's darkness. He gives life because life is in Him. Even the French general and emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, when he looked through history at all the great men and women that came, and he considered Jesus, listen to what he wrote. He said, I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself and Caesar, Alexander, should have vanquished and vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant named Jesus should be able to stretch his hands across the destinies of men and nations. I know men... And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between Him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have found empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded His empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for Him. That's the Christ of Christmas. Now let's go on and read the crisis of Christmas. And again, by crisis I mean juncture, turning point, point of decision. That's what the word actually means originally. There's two responses spoken of beginning in verse 10. Two choices, two crises that the world have when it comes to Christ. One is the majority response. It's what most of the world has decided. The second is the minority response, and it's the right one. Notice in verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, or the authority, or the power, the privilege to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those are the two responses. It boils down to two. Now you might look at this and say, I disagree. I think there are many choices. I think you're too black and white. That's what I don't like about you fuzzy fundamentalists anyway. Is you're always trying to boil it down to two choices, right or wrong. 
You might say, I'm not against Christ, I'm just indifferent to Him. But you've already chosen then, haven't you? Either the Bible is true and Jesus is what this says He is, or it's not true. You can't have true and sort of not true, possibly half false. What the Bible says about Jesus as being God, maker of heaven and earth, ultimate message to man, light bearer, life giver, that's either true or false. Well, I haven't chosen, I haven't decided. To be undecided is to be decided. You've not chosen Him. You're being narrow and quoting Him. He said, you're either for me or against me. You either help gather or you scatter. Those are His words. That's why Becky Pippert said he was very controversial. He divided men. There was always a clash when Jesus was around. The first choice is the majority choice. It's the choice of rejection. He came into His own... Actually, verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Now imagine that. Here's the incarnate Word, the Creator of men and women, the Creator of the world, in the very world that He made, in His own creation rejected Him. Beyond that, He clothed Himself in flesh as Israel's Messiah. And when He came as Israel's Messiah, in verse 11... The covenant people did not receive him. He was rejected by the world in general and he was rejected specifically by the Jewish nation who to this day say, we're waiting for our Messiah. It's not Jesus. Now some of you have experienced rejection. You could recount it to me. You might know what it's like to feel a husband or a wife or son or a daughter say, I don't want anything to do with you. We're going to get a divorce or I'm leaving home or I don't want to be your friend anymore. And you know the strain of a relationship when it's pulled apart. Well, Jesus walked that path. The very world, His own creation, would not receive Him nor His covenant people. Now why? Why do people still to this day reject the very God who made them? Reject Jesus, except maybe once a year at Christmas, for this reason. Jesus is all right as long as he stays that little baby, don't let him get out of that manger, grow up, and say the things that he said. Don't let him say, I and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I can't hang with that. It's too narrow for me. Stay in the manger. You're more manageable that way. I like you once a year. You look good under my tree. But the Christ of Christmas produces a crisis. And part of that crisis is a rejection. That's the majority choice. Let's go on and see the best choice. It's the reception of Him. Verse 12, as many as received Him. I like that term better, by the way, than have you accepted Christ. It's better to say have you received Him. This talks about a commitment. The word believe doesn't mean I acknowledge in my brain. It means I cling to, I adhere to, I receive into my life this person. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now John elaborates on this in two chapters. When he speaks to Nicodemus, Jesus says, You must be born again. He's speaking of spiritual birth here. Now notice what it says in verse 13. Who were born. That's spiritual birth. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation doesn't come by bloodline. You, you can't, you gotta stop saying, well, my grandmother was a Christian and my 
father and mother were Christians. Therefore, well, I must be one. Maybe there's a Christian gene somewhere. Just like they found genes for thisism and thatism and everything can be blamed on genetics. I'm a Christian by genetics. Now, God has only children, no grandkids. It comes by a direct decision, a crisis. As many as received Him. It's not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but it's by God. Not by the will of the flesh. That's an interesting way to put it. In other words, he's saying, not by self-effort. Not by positive thinking. Not by self-actualization. I will become one... Listen. It's an act of God. It's a cooperation of man, but it's an act of God. You're born spiritually from above. And you cooperate by that in a choice that you make to receive Him as Lord and as Savior. I want to conclude with reading a a letter. I've always loved this letter. It's a letter of a young mother written to Santa Claus. Dear Santa, you probably are surprised to receive this letter from an adult. You may be even more surprised as you read it to find that the writer is neither a maiden aunt nor a disgruntled bachelor. I'm a young mother. Now, it's not my intention, Santa, to hurt your feelings. You see, my family has paid tribute to you for many past Christmases. My husband and I were still in our childhood. Now our children, who are six, four, and two, they still care for you. How much they care has really proved to be a problem in recent years, and it's threatening to happen again. You see, Santa, our children, well, they worship you. They speak of you constantly. They watch diligently for your December 25th appearance. Can you tell us, Santa, what you have done to deserve this faithfulness from two generations? Can you promise any future consideration in exchange for past loyalties? During a family crisis, have you ever told us, Lo, I am with you always? Were you ever with us during sorrow to comfort us with these words, but your sorrow will be turned into joy? And Santa, there's been some doubtful times. Where were you? We didn't hear from you with a calming message, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. We've come to the conclusion that you have been even less than a friend should be. We've been shortchanged. My three children have stood on windy, cold Main Street just to get a glimpse of your jolly old face. They've written heartfelt letters yearly. They've gone to department stores to whisper in your ear. They've worked hard at being good in anticipation of your Christmas Eve visit. Yes, they've done all this, Santa, as their father and I did before them. There's going to be a change this Christmas, Santa. There isn't going to be any Santa Claus worship in our home. We've decided to focus our attention and adoration on another being, one who has stood by us the other 364 days of the past year, one who has comforted us during the sorrow and doubtful times, and yes, times of crisis also. It's true, your name will probably be mentioned around our house, Santa. Old habits are hard to break abruptly. But someone else's name will be mentioned much more often The children will probably work just as hard at being good, but I hope they'll do it for another inducement, one that will last the whole year long, to bring glory to another's name. That other one has given us so much more, and not just on Christmas Eve either. You may call our family Fickle Santa, but we don't mind. 
On this December 25th and all through this year, we want a comforter, a healer, a strengthening king. We don't want a myth any longer. We've talked it over, Santa. This year we've decided to give tribute, honor, worship to someone who really deserves them, to the true giver, to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Farewell, signed a young mother. Great letter, huh? We've come to celebrate Christ. We've come to face a crisis. Jesus either is who He said He is and who the Bible says He is, or He's not. And if He is, you have a choice to make. And you might say, I'll wait. You know, think about it. It's Christmas Day. Okay, get the picture. It's Christmas Day. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. What a perfect day for you to give Him a gift. You say, a gift? What do you get to the, for the God who has everything? What gifts could I possibly buy for God? He doesn't need a razor. A tie. What could I give to God? You could give to God what He doesn't yet have. Perhaps your heart. If He doesn't have your heart, if you haven't surrendered your life to Him, that's what He wants. He wants your life, your heart. What a great present. Here's my life, Lord. From this Christmas day on forever, I'm going to serve you and love you and be your child because I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you as Christians that we can celebrate the true Christ, the Logos, the Word, the final message to the world, the Creator of heaven and earth, the One who gives light into our darkness, the One who gives us very life itself, that quality of life, that people who genuinely know you celebrate. And Father, given who you are, I pray that we'd make the right choice at this crisis, this point of juncture, decision-making. This day, if there's any hearts who are represented here right now who haven't surrendered to you, that they would do so. Before we close this service, as you're in this attitude of meditation, I want to give you an invitation, a perfect time to do it. If you know that your life isn't surrendered to God, the King, the Christ of Christmas isn't reigning in your heart right now, I'm going to ask you to invite Him in. If you'd like to do that, would you raise your hand right now? I'll pray for you as we close this service. You can give your life to Him. This Christmas Day can be your opportunity. Christ of Christmas isn't reigning in your heart right now, I'm going to ask you to invite Him in. If you'd like to do that, would you raise your hand right now? I'll pray for you as we close this service. You can give your life to Him. This Christmas Day can be your opportunity.